one of the occasions, one of the reasons we're talking, I suppose, is that you just won the Pragnall Prize, uh, a prize for sort of lifetime services to Shakespeare. Uh, so it's a good moment to look at what you've done in Shakespeare over the years and, and whether you're thinking about it has changed. Because in a way, you have a kind of gap in your Shakespeare CV for some years. I mean, you know, between Cressida and Gertrude, um, um, an audio book of Hamlet, uh, and, you know, obviously uh, all kinds of other amazing roles, and Hedda Gardner and the Duchess of Malfi and little things like that. But um, no Lady Macbeth, uh, you know, no, no Countess of Roussillon yet, or, or you know, any of, or Pauline, no, no. any of, uh, uh, no Hermione. I mean, it, I, I hope we have these to look forward to. Well, it's, it's absolutely true what you say. And, and in fact, I feel a little bit, I felt a little bit sort of shy when this glorious Pregnant Prize, um, uh, you know, letter arrived. I was completely thrilled. And I sort of say a bit more about why I was so thrilled, well, later. But I did think, goodness, well, you know, I mean, I spent my 20s doing Shakespeare. But as you rightly say, I haven't um, done very much since. And um, I, I was, I have been asked to do a few Shakespeare roles, including Lady Macbeth. But I think I feel, I, I, that was at the National some years ago, a long time ago, and I, I just, I became very wary of doing roles for the sake of it. Mm -hmm. Although part of me just wanted to knock them off, say, well, yes, you know, it would be so wonderful to get to the end of your working life and say, well, I played absolutely every Shakespeare heroine, you know, that I could. Mm. But I very, very much didn't, didn't, feel that I, I've always right from the word go or very early on I think wanted to make sure that if if I did a Shakespeare play then it was because I really believe that play spoke for the time that we were living in right now you know yeah. right then at yeah. the time of the production and and did I have something to offer that role that hadn't been done a hundred times before and that may seem strange sort of um, requirements but I, I just felt very strongly about that and I think having had this amazing opportunity with the measure for measure that you mentioned with them um, Adrian Noble's Measure for Measure in that fantastic production when I was very young. Mm. And having an opportunity to sort of crack open Isabella a bit and release her from this dramatic and literary tradition of being this sort of frigid, mm. you know, sexual hysteric or something. Mm. Mm. I really then so wanted, and we'll talk about this later, but I so wanted to, to um, make my commitment to those roles about re-examining them in, in the light of the current day and perhaps in the light of what the women's movement has brought to bear and so on and not just churn out another lady m or so i i was a bit sort of picky i think and mm -hmm. i and part of me is a little sad that i haven't done you know more as you rightly say there's loads i haven't played um and there's loads i won't i mean i always wanted to play cleopatra but i think that's not possible i don't think a white actress can play cleopatra now it's just not possible mm -hmm. and, and, and rightly so so um yeah that's that's just the way things have, have worked out. But when I did Gertrude um, a couple of years ago in Robert Icke's production, the Andrew Scott one, um, it was amazing to return to it. And I realized sort of rather achingly how much I'd missed it. Hmm. Yeah, because uh, some performers, and I'm thinking of Harriet Walter, have repeatedly turned down Gertrude on the grounds that she's too compliant, she doesn't have enough to say, she's not interesting enough, she's just a foil, and so on. You seem to have got round that fine. No, well, that's such a great question, because I did turn it down. So when Rob <laughs> I came to me and said, um, will, you, will you do it? We already had a relationship, as I, we wanted to work together. And um, I sort of spotted him when he was very young, and I thought, he, this, this, this young man is amazing. And so I sort of kept in touch with him, and we'd met for coffee every now and then. And then, and then uh, Mary Stewart came up, and then he, he said to me, will you, will you do Hamlet? Will you do Gertrude? And I said, Rob, I'm dying to work with you, but I really don't want to do Gertrude. No, thank you, no. Um, and he said, why not? And I said, well, because she's, you know, as you just said, I said, she's, it's just a terrible role. She's only there in relationship to Hamlet. She doesn't speak. She's the most spoken about character. You know, he's, he, his first soliloquy is entirely about her, about his rage about the speed of her marriage. And, and she's talked about, she's talked at, she's talked over, um, she's talked under, she's talked um, to, but she doesn't talk very much. And, and I said, why, why would I want to do that? You know, and he said, he went on and on and on. I said, Rob, there's only one way in which I could say yes to Gertrude, and that would be if you placed, if you took 
Gertrude's silence, the fact that she doesn't speak. She's so often present, but, but doesn't speak. And you place that silence in the production. So we looked at why. Why is it that she doesn't speak? Why is it the women so often don't speak in Shakespeare? And we could include Ophelia in that um, exploration as well. And if you pledge to me that we will make that silence of hers part of how we look at the play, then I'll say yes. And he said, right, you're on. <laughs> so we did. And, and it was really wonderful because what he did was he brought me into all sorts of situations in the play where she doesn't necessarily exist. I mean, there was an amazing beginning, beginning moment where I come, we had a Gertrude and, and Claudius, his wedding party going on behind a glass screen at the beginning of the show. And I came sort of running out from the party and saw him sitting alone, Hamlet, on his suitcase, ready, packed up to go to Wittenberg. And um, there's a whole moment of being shocked at his departure, full of anger and grief about, you know, the whole thing of them not being able to speak to each other anymore and the loss and the grief about that and the anger was held in this silent moment at the right at the top of the show. And then I went back mm. to the party and then the party picks up and then, so there were moments like that throughout. And then also he found this extraordinary scene in a different folio, a scene between um, Horatio and Gertrude where he, yeah. Horatio says, you know, you do know, don't you? That yeah, yeah. when yeah. Hamlet was sent to England, um, Claudius wanted to kill yeah, yeah. him and um, first quarter yeah so and that was kind of a final key because where she disappears in the play there was suddenly a little scene there it's not great writing hmm. um, but it's crucial because then you see that the whole schism in Gertrude that grows through the play of do I choose my son or do I choose my husband this agonizing split that develops and develops and grows that there is a key there for you in that scene and you realize that actually yes she does make the choice okay. to be with Hamlet and I've no doubt at all that in that last scene it's, she's choosing to bring that poison you know she she knows Claudius by then she knows everything about him she mm. doesn't trust him anymore and and so we played that she's aware that the drink is poisoned or she becomes aware because of his insistence that everybody drinks it all the time. And, and so she chooses to drink it to save Hamlet's life. And that's the last thing she can do. It's the only thing she can do for him. Yeah. Yes. Um, maternal, sensual and tormented, I seem to remember the Guardian saying. Uh, you, know, the, you don't get much time in theatre reviews anymore to go into the fine detail. But uh, <laughs> that's the impression you made very fleetingly on one reviewer. Here's a question. Well, I'm actually, if yeah. there were three adjectives, I'm really pleased with those three. <laughs> I, d I don't read reviews, so that's, I haven't heard yeah. that. But I am pleased yeah. because I wanted to play her as a really ardent mother. You know, she's yeah. only got one child. Yeah. Um, I don't think the marriage to Old Hamlet was a good one. And, you know, I think she is really in love with Claudius and probably was for a long time before yeah. Old Hamlet died. But What we see um, of Old Hamlet doesn't suggest he was ever much fun. Not much, extremely yeah. patriarchal, authoritative, a bit grim, you know, yeah. very low on a sense on a sense of humour, and away basically yeah. fighting wars all the time. That mm. this is not a recipe for a great marriage. No, indeed. Um, you're always in work, so you tend to be on stage when other people are doing productions. Have you watched many other productions of Hamlet, or have you just not had the chance? I've watched a few Hamlets over the years. Um, Did any stick in your mind when you were thinking about doing Gertrude as things to avoid or as things to emulate? You know, it's a really wonderful question and I would say no. I, I was asked this question in, in a Q&A session with drama students recently, you know, how, what do you do when you're about to play a part that's been yeah. played thousands of times before. Mm. And interestingly enough, I found myself saying, it doesn't really particularly enter my consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I think, well, what, is that really true? And I think the thing is, well, yes, it is true, because how could you begin? I mean, you wouldn't begin if you had yeah. all those other characters. You know, if when I'd done As You Like It, I had Vanessa Redgrave, sort of iconic, mm -hmm. As You Like It. In mm -hmm. the, the, for me, for me, the thing that makes it new and therefore makes other previous performances sort of irrelevant. I don't mean irrelevant to them or to the people yeah. who watched, but irrelevant to me rehearsing it now, is that I only, my interest in Shakespeare is how he speaks to the present current moment. Yeah. How does he speak to the times we're living in right now? Mm -hmm. I have no interest in Shakespeare archivally. I do, I'm not interested in how the plays were performed in his time. Yeah. And, you know, if anything, it's a problem that they yeah. were, the women parts were played by young, by young boys because it meant they couldn't contribute their experience of life mm -hmm. to the shaping of the script, which we know that some of the actors did. Yeah. And 
so I think that's partly why they're often underwritten and, and often only sort of representational sometimes. Mm. And, um, I mean, obviously, often not that. But um, so my my engagement with them is entirely about well, how does Isabella, Rosalind, um, Cressida, Gertrude speak to now? Mm-hmm. And 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 if if that's your sort of modus operandi, that if that's your great what drives the exploration, which it always does for me, then really previous productions don't really worry me very much. Yeah. Um, but it, to answer the other part of your question, which is, do I watch productions? Um, no, I don't very much. Mm. Um, Shakespeare is an absolute passion. Mm. I. Um, it was what made me an actor in the first place, as I said very quickly, briefly in that <laughs> in that Instagram uh, little piece when I accepted this wonderful prize. Um, it completely changed my life. That production of Richard II, and I was it that is a John Bar- was that John Barton's production? Yeah, yeah, yeah. with Ian, Ian Richardson, Ian Richardson, Richard Passmore. Richard, yeah, alternating exactly. I saw it six times that summer. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll, we'll go to that later. But um, I therefore I don't see a lot because I'm scared that it won't. It won't match up to what I want it to be. I think King Lear is perhaps my, if I had to pick one play, I'd say Lear was probably my favorite. And I'm wary of seeing shows, I'm wary of seeing productions because I, I, you know, I'm, I'm wary that it won't match up to what I want it to be. And that's not a, an objective assessment of, of any production. It's just a sort of other childish thing of, you've got to meet my expectations. I, I'm, I'm shy about saying this because it sounds disrespectful and I really don't mean it to be. Um, I think I don't go to the theatre nearly as much as I'd like to, for the reasons you say. Um, once you're a working mum, you know, your life is about family and work and there's not a huge amount of sort of time. Yeah. But I, you know, I have, lo- I have loved watching many wonderful performances by other people um, over the years. So did you go a lot as a teenager? Did you build up a kind of bank of impressions then? No, I never went to the theatre. I went to the theatre very little as a child because we lived abroad. My dad was in the army, so it was a military um, uh, upbringing, going travelling all around the world. So I saw no theatre as a child. When we eventually settled in England in my teens, I would go to my parents would take me to Windsor Rep, where there was sort of never Shakespeare, but just sort of you know quite comfortable comedies. Mm. So when I walked into the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford at 16 years old, uh, taken there by this friend uh, and her parents. I mean, that's why it was life-changing because I walked in and I think it was, a, it was the first Shakespeare play I'd ever seen on stage. Mm. Um, and it was, I did walk out of that theatre a different person. And then I saw that production six times that summer. And then I started going constantly to the RSC and seeing everything. I would hitch up, you know, sleep somewhere rough. I mean, I was really obsessed. So that was when the light bulb went on. And then I did start seeing as much theatre as I could yeah. from 16, yeah. Yeah, and then you started seeing it from being in it. I mean, you, you, your arrival at the RSC, I mean, it's an extraordinary period in a, uh, a young performer's career that, that you're know, pretty much straight out of drama school, you're suddenly in The Tempest with Jacoby and you're in Measure for Measure and, and as, a, as a non-speaking nun. Uh, it was uh, Michael Horden, actually. Michael Horden was oh, Prospero. Oh, yeah, of course, yes. So it was. Um, and, and yeah, you're in that Measure for Measure with Pennington and, and co. And, and Ruby yeah. Wax as another nun. Uh, and, yes. and, and, and then playing um, Octavia for Peter Brook uh, in a cast with Glenda Jackson and David Suchet and Jonathan Pryde. Well, actually, Michael, I was, I was Iris. Yeah. Uh, in that production in Stratford and then when it came to London you're right then then he asked me to do Octavia as well because right. that actress left um right. so I, I I started I started with Iris um mm. uh in Stratford and then in London in that Brooke production of Anthony and Cleopatra then I played uh, Octavia as well so it was a crazy evening of running from uh, Rome to Egypt indeed. yeah yeah no I didn't see it till it got to London so I think of you as Octavia oh. Oh, okay yeah. but what was I mean what was that like uh, what how how did it feel or, or what was a working day like when you were rehearsing in that production or in any of those shows? Oh, I mean, it was the most extraordinary year because I'd become, since that Richard II, I'd become obsessed with the Royal Shakespeare Company and I'd become a complete groupie. And from 16 um, to 20, I had seen practically everything they did, often more than once, you know, summer folk, amazing, gorg- lots and lots of things. And so... 
when I was at, when I was at RADA, Trevor Nunn came to audition me, and mm. that was a sort of the first shock, you know, because he was like an iconic, you know. Yeah. He came to audition me for what turned out to be the very first um, small-scale um, tour, so-called, of the RSC, for that Twelfth Night and Three Sisters in mm. 19... 78 I think um, and I didn't get into that um, um, but he did say uh, you know he did say well we'll have you in the company so to find myself in that company age 20 you know three months out of drama school was the most astonishing thing and I don't know whether you know the story of how it happened but oh, tell me I went so I went up at the last minute um, the company had started rehearsing they were about to open the first production of the season which was Clifford Williams's production of The Tempest with Michael Gordon, David Suchet, all sorts of amazing people. Um, I was in London, I just finished some schools theatre and, and my agent rang and said go into the Aldwych now where the RSC was based. I ran into the Aldwych and they said can you dance? I said yes a bit and they said could you be on a train at two o'clock? That was basically my prerequisite and I said yes so I ran home packed a few things ran to the station and, and a girl a young actress in the company had broken her leg the day before and she was just playing those play as cast roles right at the bottom of the hierarchy ladder and they just needed somebody quickly to replace her for eight weeks so I got this train up to Stratford I was met by um, Larry Adler famously the, the cab driver he brought me to the RST I got out of the car, I was taken to the stage door, somebody led me in, took my coat and my suitcase away from me, led me to the wings, this is absolutely true, where there was a dress rehearsal of The Tempest going on. I found myself, age 20, like a rabbit in the headlamps, <laughs> in the wings of the RST, on stage was Michael Horden, David Suchet, Ian Charleston, people like that, and they said, now listen, just, you see this person in front of you, just go on stage and do whatever she does. <laughs> it was pitch dark. So then I waited for a while and then a little person in front of me ran on stage and barked. So I ran on stage behind her and I barked. <laughs> <laughs> it was surreal. Anyway, she was a hellhound summoned by right. Prospero. Yeah. It turned yeah. out that, that little person was Ruby Wax. And, um, <laughs> and there I was. And, and, and it was all supposed to be just an eight-week contract. But after about four or five weeks, they said, well, actually, we might as well extend this to the, you know, to the year. Mm. And then somebody else fell out of the company by becoming pregnant. And so I took over a small role that she had in The Taming of the Shrew um, with Jonathan Price and David Suchet mm. and Paola Dionizotti. And, so yeah. and then Barry Powell gave me this extraordinary um, opportunity in the Churchill play. And then at the end of the year, he gave me this extraordinary role in um, a play called The White Guard by Mikhail Bulgakov. Oh, yes, yes, which yes. Jane Lapiter had been going to play. The, mm. There was one sort of female lead, um, mm. the only woman in the in the play, and she had been going to do it, but she was exhausted, having just opened Piaf um, uh, at the other place, and so they needed to replace her. And so, for some reason, I'll never understand. He sort of took a real chance and and mm. asked me to do it. So that, but but oh, in the middle of all that, then Peter Brook arrived, and I found myself auditioning for him with Glenda Jackson in the conference hall rehearsal room. Um, I mean, honestly, Michael, it was the most surreal year. Mm. I'd just been reading The Empty Space, you know, Peter Brook was a sort of god for me. Yeah. And I would sit up in my, in my little tiny bedroom, which looked out over the stage door, and see this god, mm -hmm. you know, walking into the stage door. And luckily for me, he hadn't quite finished casting that production. And so he was still looking for an iris and a few other small parts. Mm. And so that's how I ended up um, in that. Did you have a strong impression of different directors having completely different approaches to what went on in the rehearsal room? Totally different. The company? Mm. Completely different. Mm -hmm. I mean, the RSC in those days, if you think there was Howard Davis as a young man, Barry Carl as a very young man, yeah. um, Bill Alexander, Ron Daniels, um, they were all the sort of young Turks, as it were. There were no women directors. Those, those guys all had very different approaches. Um, I mean, Barry Kyle was, you know, working class boy from Ilford. He came incredibly talented. Yeah. His approach to Shakespeare was probably something I identified most. And that's when I did a, a nun and a mm. sex worker in his production of um, Measure for Measure. But it was, he, was, he came to it with, with a lot of sort of grit, a lot of social realism. Um, the, but, you know, then we had Clifford Williams, who was a very the grand old style, you know, and we had, and then with Peter Brook, this, this sort of iconic, experimental, incredible theatre 
mind. It was every kind of director and you just had to adapt. Mm. But I think at RADA, that's what, that's what had been, RADA had been like. I mean, at RADA, they just throw all sorts of different directors at you um, and you just have to find a way of learning to work with everybody. And that, so I had some experience of that. Yeah. But I mean, no, I shouldn't, I shouldn't romanticize it. I mean, the, the Peter Brook rehearsals were extremely difficult, actually. Um, I think Peter, we had 12 weeks, but he started the first four weeks with the principals only. And I would say that the hierarchy of the play was directly reflected in the rehearsal room. Mm -hmm. So if you were playing a large role, you had a relationship with him. If you, if you, if you were not, um, then you very much didn't. And a lot of people were just very, very frightened in that room. And it was... It was a complicated room. I think it was very difficult for Peter coming back from France. Mm -hmm. He'd had, you know, 10 years out of England uh, working exactly as he wanted to with no bureaucracy, no rules, you know, his own way with complete creative freedom. And then he came into the RSC, which um, fantastic though it is, is an institution. It does have hierarchies and it has its ways of operating. And I think he may have found it quite difficult. Um, but it wasn't extraordinary. I mean, I, I, there were extraordinary things happened in that room that I will never forget. Um, but I, you know, I worked incredibly hard because I was rehearsing always, all day, every day, I and mean, yeah. always on stage at night. So eight shows a week, I was, you know, playing a sort of spear carrier of some mm. description or a small role, and then daytimes I was always rehearsing for the next show. Mm. Yeah, there's probably all a, quite a lot of it must be a blur. I'd have thought. Is the general sense of exhaustion and and, and adrenaline? Well, adrenaline, certainly. I don't ever remember feeling exhausted. Um, but the other amazing thing about that time, Michael, was that we had Cicely Berry every morning at nine o'clock mm. giving a voice and text warm-up in class, walking around the conference hall, puffing on her Marlboro, yeah. you know, full-strength yeah. cigarette. Yeah. Um, so you had an hour of Cis Berry before rehearsal started. On mm. Saturday mornings, David Suchet was running workshops at the other place. Mm. John Barton would hold sonnet classes in the lunch hour. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you imagine? It was a gift from the gods, you know. So I would go to all those things. I'd grab a sandwich and go to John Barton's sonnet classes. And I, I mean, no, it's not a blur, actually, because that's what, that's where I really think my training was. Yeah. You know, and I was, I was so shaped by this genius, this Berry, genius John Barton, Trevor, all, you know, Terry Hans, that school is what shaped me. And they took me this sort of seedling plant mm -hmm. and it was like they put me in their greenhouse and they fertilized and fed and watered. And I, I felt I was sort of, I, I was grown, they, they grew me as a plant. They gave me all these sort of opportunities to learn. Mm -hmm. And then also just standing on stages, you know, for weeks, months, years, w watching those amazing actors. Um, so it was an extraordinary, intense learning curve. There was nothing else in my life. There was no time, you know, but I was, I, I consider myself incredibly lucky. Yeah. Well, you grew very quickly. I mean, you, 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 your roles sort of expanded exponentially over those early years. And you did, as you say, you were in the White Guard. Uh, you played uh, in that wonderful, rather Brechtian Barry Kyle production, The Witch of Edmonton. Yes. Uh, I remember. I mean, did, did that give you a strong feeling of what was different about doing Shakespeare? to doing other writers, even from his time. Yeah, very much so. Mm. Very much so. Um, and that was a fantastic production of The Witch of Edmonton. Yeah. I mean, I think the Jacobeans um, feel more brutal, you know, when you've done Shakespeare a lot. They, you do suddenly feel like, you know, you've, you, you were driving in a Maserati and now you're on the back of somebody's, you know, extremely speedy, <laughs> motorbike and it's quite dangerous it's quite a dangerous place to be in a Jacobean play um when I later did Duchess of Malfi um just after the birth of my first child I really thought I to, I've never never in my life have I begun to do anything as difficult as this because yeah but anyway um but you see but I yes I had done Shakespeare but but then all the time we were also doing new writing at the other place. Mm. So I also did, you know, and there was amazing stuff there. I mean, we did the first, you know, we did new plays by Howard Brenton, Trevor Griffiths, um, David Rudkin, all those incredible writers of that time. Um, and well, still, still writing now, some of them. Um, so we were all, it was always a, it was always a diet of Shakespeare and brand new writing. And that was again, what a gift, you know? So I, I did alternate 
Um, but though that production of Barry's at the at the Aldwych, no, at the Barbican was was an amazing one. He had a kind of rigor. Mm -hmm. There was no Barry wanted those plays to be as raw and as ardent and as you know visceral. They were really visceral. He he brought some extraordinary qualities to his work um, then. Mm. Yeah, indeed, indeed, and a Barry as well, which which you know, can can make a lot of difference. And yeah. Then you hit the mid '80s and that wonderful Isabella, and Cressida, and Rosalind, um, and suddenly you're not just in a company that's got a tradition that you've joined, but you're recognizably part of a sort of generation of female performers who are perhaps less comfortable with some older ways of playing Shakespeare's heroines. And there's a sort of recognizable group of you who, instead of being ingenues, who think the rules of this fairy tale world are just fine, look potentially at odds with it or at variance with it or as though they've got their own take on it which was incredibly mm. refreshing as, as I remember were you did you feel that at the time did you were, was there you know I'm thinking I mean think of who was in the company then Sinead Cusack Harriet Walter Paola Giannisotti um, Fiona Shaw who came in for the as you like it I mean did you did you feel you were a a, a cohort um I <laughs> I didn't actually, to be absolutely honest, because Sinead, they're all phenomenal actresses and, and they're all friends of mine. Um, I wasn't in, I was in the company with, with, with them, but, but by the time I came to do As You Like It, Cressida and, uh, well, Les Lies and Archie, by the time I came to do, to do um, Measure for Measure, I don't, they weren't in the company then. Mm. Um, they had mm. been. Yeah. I, I would say that the initiative this, this sort of preoccupation I, I had to look at these heroines sort of as freshly as I could. So my image was, at the time, was sort of, you take a statue in a park, which has been created, and since it's been put up in the park, you know, pigeons have <laughs> shat on it, and it's been eroded by pollution and people. It was like I wanted to take a scrubbing brush and scrub that statue of that character down and say, what, what was, what, what's her original shape? So my starting point was always the text. Mm. I, don't, I think my influences, rather than being part of a cohort, I think my influences were this, this real obsession with, with the text. What did Shakespeare write? Not as opposed to what is the tradition here? Now, mm -hmm. if you take As You Like It as an example, and, and Adrian Noble, I'm sure he won't mind me saying, I mean, we did disagree sometimes in rehearsal because As You Like It is traditionally done at this sort of rural pastoral romp. It's, it's a comedy, yeah. it's light, everybody's jumping on and off logs and out of trees, and you know, it's a great love story. What Shakespeare has written is the most astonishing exploration of gender. And that's not me projecting stuff onto it. Mm -hmm. Why does a young woman who's fallen in love at first sight with a young man, when she meets him later in the forest, why does she choose to stay in the trousers? Why didn't she, if, 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 if it's a love story, why didn't she just rip off her men's clothing and say, darling, I'm here? Mm. Because she has discovered that the freedoms afforded her by being dressed as a man have made her realize how much of her lie dormant as a woman perceived as, you know, when she was perceived as a woman, the restrictions on her are so great that she needs to go on living uh, uh, with the world perceiving her as a man to enjoy those freedoms and to continue to discover who she is mm. and what love is and what love, grown up, proper, workable love means between man and woman. And that means testing it to the utmost and smashing all his sort of preconceptions about romantic love and, and the idea of love. She wants to explore and demolish this sort of romantic idea of love and find out what the real thing is. Is this young man going to be a man who really understands what loving a woman is and vice versa? Now that's not a romantic comedy. You know, it's funny, it's a beautiful play and it's funny, but that's a very, very, uh, um, it's, it's a radical piece. For, for its time, it's astonishing that he was writing like that, you know, about, about gender. Um, and lots of characters are, are um, all the character, all the love relationships in that play are examining status and inequality, and you know, mm. um, Touchstone and Audrey, or, or, and so on. So that was my my mission, and 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 it was shaped by the women's movement. Things I was reading, the the the, the, the zeitgeist of the women's movement at the time. But it, but but it wasn't that I was 
imposing on it, I don't think. Mm. It was just driven by this desire to, to use that, that discovery I was making about those questions that were being asked in the culture about women yeah. um, and bring that to bear on the plays. Then Fiona was in As You Like It. Fiona Shaw played Celia and she and I were very much um, in dialogue about that in relation mm. to that play. Mm. But I, I, I think it was later, Jonathan Miller, you know, wrote, wrote about me and Harriet and Fiona or something as being these three nuns or something. And then people started talking about this, this era. But I, I don't think I particularly felt part of a cohort. I, mm -hmm. I, I would have been happy to be, but I, sometimes it was, I was quite lonely actually, because um, you take on those things, sometimes they're a joy, but quite often the institution can be resistant to that, mm -hmm. you know. That was an astonishing production. I mean, I saw it as often as you saw the Richard II a, a, a decade earlier. Um, and it was all different every night. It was very much alive. And it was very different in London to in Stratford, where the, the Forest of Arden was, was a slightly different shape in London, as, uh, as I remember. The dust sheets weren't so up front. I mean, for the benefit yeah. of people who, you know, who didn't see it, and, you know, so, uh, uh, poor pitiable creatures. Um, your Forest of Arden, instead of looking like an Errol Flynn, Robin Hood movie, um, <laughs> you, you, you and I remember the first scene between Rosalind and Celia, you'd sort of run off to an attic yeah. with dust sheets, where uh, yeah. as though it was a kind of childhood memory of the old regime. Um, yes. And that attic sort of became the Forest of Arden. It was, it was like the court, except under dust sheets. Exactly. Uh, and, and anything was possible there. Yeah. Um, and yeah. you had that bowler hat. Yeah. In a slightly casual well, kind of way. God, you remembered it so brilliantly. That's absolutely right. So the idea is that, you know, in a way, her old life, her dad, the, the woman that she was before her father was banished and she became sort of almost like a prisoner in that, in that court at the beginning of the play, was all in dust sheets, in locked away. Her life had been, and her father's life had been locked away in that attic. And we had this idea that, you know, she, she's very upset when she's low or sad or, or feels, uh, you know, feels her displacement and her loss. She goes to this attic and that Celia joins her there and it's their only space. It's a space yeah. where they play or chat or cheer each other up or, 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 or do make believe, you know, dress up. And it's like a sort of nursery idea, but it's in an attic. So the idea that, you know, of course, when she gets dressed, well, what men's clothes is she going to get dressed in? How mm -hmm. is she going to access men's clothes all of a sudden? Well, of course her dad's, you know, mm -hmm. her dad's stuff packed away, presumably. Um, so that's why we sort of, I wore these like the oversized suits and the funny old bowler hat and yeah. braces. And I, I, I love that idea. And yeah. I, it was an amazing set, I think. Um, oh, so the trees, as you said, these trees made of long swathes of, of silk, as you say. Yeah. Um, they were a bit hazardous. The reason it had to change a bit in London was because I kept slipping on the silk. Um, <laughs> there was a green carpet, you remember? And then the silk sheets that, that, that formed the trees and Stratford sort of lay pooled on the carpet and more than once, um, you know, we would go flying as we trod on the on the silk carpet and slid. And I actually broke my finger in, in, during a show in Stratford, so by, by such a fall. So when we came to London, I think they slightly modified the. Um, yeah, I remember so. your hat. I remember your hat falling in the pond one night in London, <laughs> um, and and that wonderful bit where Celia is beginning to feel a bit left out of of the flirtation with Orlando and does her yoga very ostentatiously. <laughs> at the back of the stage, it's, it's, it's great. And, and Alan Rickman, just the most astonishing Jayquiz. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. never, I doubt I'll ever see a better, better Jayquiz than that. Oh, Michael, yeah, it yeah. does my heart good to hear you say that. Yeah. I thought he was definitively brilliant. I mean, I don't like the word definitive, and here yeah. I am using it. Uh, there's no such thing because everybody's, you know, but, but he was an absolutely amazing Jake Quiz, wasn't yes. he? Yes, because he was serious and at the same time he was too serious so that it was funny and, and you know, yeah. it could be either or both practically at any moment. I agree and it's a performance which I don't think got the recognition it deserved and I think he felt that. Um, yeah, it was absolutely wonderful performance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he, I'm glad uh, you're honouring Yeah. And, and he'd been the messenger, as I remember, and the soothsayer in the Antony and Cleopatra. And then he was Achilles when you were Cressida. Absolutely. Um, Cressida, that, I mean, to many reviewers, I was rather surprised having read the play, but not seen it much. A lot of reviewers seem to be astonished that your Cressida wasn't played as a kind of terminal flirt <laughs> to, betray, to betray Troilus. 
but was instead played as somebody who was dumped by Troilus, who was allowed to go back to the Greeks by Troilus, who, who was more betrayed than betraying. Um, well, and that was a very strong and very clear choice in that production, which seemed to surprise people at the time. But, but I don't think any Cressida since has gone back to just playing her as a kind of bubbly Barbara Windsor. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, Michael, again, um, no, I, I got a certain amount. I mean, it was an exquisite production by Howard Davis. Do you yeah. remember the set, which was something yeah. like, like, as it was set on, in like a, a house like Gone with the Wind, you know, this yeah. huge mansion yeah. going to rock, rack and ruin, um, this massive staircase with a balustrade coming down and, very, very wonderful production. And again, Howard Davis doing what he always did, which was again, to take his really fine intellect and his sort of political mind to that play and say, it's, it's, it's not, let's not have togas. And, you know, let's, let's look at this as, a, as an extraordinary play about politics and the human, um, you know, the, the fallout for human lives when, when this, con of, of this conflict and for the women, you know, that, that fallout um, collateral as it were is, is huge. And, Again, I didn't set out to sort of refuse to play uh, Cressida um, as, a, as a bubbly Barbara Windsor, but when, I, when we looked at the play, um, there is no evidence mm. that she doesn't love Troilus. Mm. She's, the, the words she says, you know, the, for, when, they're, when, when they're talking to each other at the beginning, absolutely uh, clear. Then she is sent over to the enemy camp as a political prisoner. Mm. He doesn't stop that happening. Mm. Troilus does not prevent that happening. She's sent over to the enemy camp as a young woman. And the first thing that happens when she gets into that camp is that she's sent round from man to man. Um, it's like a sort of verbal, I mean, she's abused and belittled and sexually yeah. toyed with by the whole ring yeah. of, those, of those Greek men. And any young woman, completely without any power in that situation, would quickly think, okay, I have to make a relationship with one of these men to protect me. Now, I've since been in many refugee camps, for example, and mm. you'll find that refugee women arriving alone in those camps or with a young child will make a relationship very quickly with a man because the only way they can survive and survive not being you know, brutalized or whatever is to, have, to be in a relationship with a man who will protect them. It's a really common strategy by, and, and that's what that's what Cressida has to do. And that's just mm. the text. Yeah. It requires no, there was no, we didn't change a word of the text. Now, when, when the show opened, it got very well reviewed, but I did, there were some questions asked, you know, one critic was very angry and said, really, you know, Stevenson and Davis, meaning Howard, have gone too far. You know, feminism is taking over the Royal Shakespeare Company. He was very angry. And he said, you know, there is no, there is no justification for this in the text. So a month or two later, I saw this critic in the Dirty Duck mm. in Stratford, and I thought, there he is. I mm. can't resist. I can't resist this. So I went up to him. And I said, "Hello," um, and he looked at me and was obviously quite, you know, it's always a little bit nerve-endingy, you know, jangly when when critics meet actors who they have. Um, badly reviewed and I said listen can we just have a conversation about your review because I was very interested to see that you felt that we had you know been disloyal and, and stretched the text into, into an impossible shape and there was no justification in the text when did you last when did you last read the play hmm. and he said oh you know some years ago and I said okay I just wondered because obviously we've spent eight weeks doing nothing but look at the play so when you say that we have distorted the text, I'm wondering what your authority is for saying that and, and why, why you think that we would have done that when we have actually been immersed in nothing but the text of this play. Um, and, 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 and then I explained our, why we'd made the decisions we had and, and he was very good and he listened. And then I, and I said, just do me a favor, come, come and re-review it in London. And if you still want to write what you wrote, that's fine. But I invite you to come in London, having read the play again carefully before you review it. And um, to his eternal credit, he came a year later to see it at the Barbican and he wrote a review and said, well, you know, <laughs> uh, I've now read the play and again, and, uh, and uh, I, see, I see what it is that they're doing. And I mean, I, I you know, all, all credit to him, but it's, it is always, a, if you decide to change something that has long existed in, dramatic or literary tradition, you're going to meet objections to it. People want those stereotypes, with, particularly where women are concerned.
Mm. They love their female stereotypes. The ingenue, the cross old crone, you know, the voluptuous temptress, the femme fatale, all those bloody cliches, you know, excuse my language. Mm. And so my submission has always been, let's not put women on our stages trapped in these stereotypes and cliches, please. You know, women are as complex, you know, as, as the next person. Let's, let's look at them in all their contradictions. Mm, absolutely. However, as you said earlier, Shakespeare has some restrictions because he's working for a male <laughs> company. And it's also, yeah. it's also a company that's largely adult males. So unlike writing for the all-boy companies, he can't write as many female roles or, or female roles that, that occupy, except exceptionally, as with the case of Rosalind, that, that take up quite so much airtime as the men do. Um, increasingly, we're seeing female performers taking on male roles in Shakespeare. You know, Harriet playing Brutus and Prospero, Glenda Jackson playing King Lear twice. Um, is that an option that has occurred to you? Have people off started offering you male roles? Um, no, I don't think they have offered me. No, I haven't been offered that. Um, I think that the gender fluidity is really, really interesting. Hmm. Um, as I think, you know, race fluidity, sexuality fluidity, I, I think that theatre is a place of transformation. Yeah. That's the beginning and the end of what it is. It's a place in which actors come and transform into playing other characters. It's a place in which audiences come in and may have their perception um, transformed by what they see and hear the human story that they're witnessing and being drawn into and and transformation is 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 its is its frame is its golden rule is its raison d'etre so I think if we I, and I've always believed as actors that we should be able to play anything and anybody so therefore that would mean sure we can but we've all got men and women in us I mean I really do believe that we all are we do contain the male and the female all of us it's just a question of what's well, a question of many things where you sit on that spectrum or how much of yourself you allow out you know how much of your um alternative you know gender you you allow in yourself and what we and but what do we mean by those gender sort of characteristics anyway um traditionally prescribed sort of male and female characteristics but i do think that we know that biologically, you know, we are, we are, um, we do contain all those things. And therefore I do think that, that, that it's fine to, to, for women to play men and, and men to play women. I mean, I celebrate it and I enjoy it. Yeah. I have one, um, I suppose I have one reservation, which is that I don't particularly aspire to play men's roles. Mm. All my life I wanted to play King Lear, mm. you know, because I saw that play when I was in my teens too. And, it blew me away, you know, and I think I identified so strongly with King Lear as a character when I was still a teenage girl, um, <laughs> which is interesting. And not with, not with Goneril or Regan or Cordelia. Um, and I identified with Lear because he was this person feeling himself to be very wronged, very indignant, outraged at how he's being treated, not given the freedoms that he wants, you know, wanting more, wanting license to do what he wants, um, expecting others to put up with it. I mean, you know, does that remind you, I'm describing a teenager. <laughs> so, you know, the, the scale of his outrage and his fury um, was the first time I'd met language that expressed the extent of my teenage outrage and fury, you know. So I always wanted to play King Lear, but I think now that I'm the age I am and all these decades later, I think I want to play women's experience. Mm. I don't necessarily want to be a woman who plays men's experience. Um, and that's not to, I absolutely salute and honor those who are, and I think it's a fascinating development. Mm. It's just personally, I think I'd rather be telling women's stories because there are so many untold stories mm -hmm. um, that mm. women need to tell. And particularly, you know, I'm looking at King Lear, and then why wouldn't I play, play, why wouldn't I be telling the story of a woman of that age a woman's you know, woman has a lot to say at, at, at King Lear's age, whatever that is. And um, so that's my sort of feeling about that. I think you're going to have to write it yourself. Yeah, that, that <laughs> might be, you need to commission. Well, that. possibly. Yeah. 
Although, you know, the play I'm doing at the moment, when, well, I was doing before lockdown, that yeah. Rob Ike has written um, for, for us to do together, which is this amazing, I mean, that's an incredible role. You know, she's a complete huge journey. She goes on existential journey where she meets the limitations and the consequences of her own behavior. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not unlike a sort of Lear role in a way. Um, she's on stage the whole evening and, so thankfully people are beginning to write for women of older women, giving them the scale of experience to, to express on stage that, that we have long lacked. Mm. Are there any other roles you've played outside Shakespeare that you feel are comparable in some way to the work you've done inside Shakespeare or the work you did in Shakespeare in your twenties or where you felt there were resonances between them or where you drew on things you've done with the RSC? I think every piece of work I've done has drawn on what I learned at the RSC. Mm. Every single piece of work, whether it's radio, television, film, whatever the medium, I know that I drew on what I learned at the RSC. I would say it was a furnace. I was sort of forged in that furnace in my, from the age of 20 to 28 at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And, and those people I mentioned, what I learned there, what I learned about rhythm and language, what I learned from CIS, and John Barton and Trevor and all those people about the literal meaning of language is only half what its value is. There's so much meaning expressed in the sounds and the shapes and the energies of language, the rhythms of language and learning to act in, in iambic pentameter. I mean, I basically learned to act in iambic pentameter. Mm. Um, yeah, I was doing modern work as well, as I said, but and you know, now I notice all the time that we speak in iambic pentameter a lot of the time. A lot of people just naturally speak in, in that rhythm. And, and I'm obsessed with rhythm. So it, a, an obsession with the rhythm of language was born then, which has taken me into every single medium. There's no question. I, you know, a script written last week is still, I'm still just as preoccupied with the rhythms of its dialogue as I would be mm. with Shakespeare. Um, but to answer your question more directly, I suppose the Schiller. Mm. Playing playing Mary Stuart and Elizabeth I in in, um, in in Schiller's play Mary Stuart, brilliantly rewritten for our time by Rob Ike. Mm. I drew on a lot of experience of Shakespeare. I suppose he, he wrote he wrote, he wrote that himself in iambic pentameter, as you probably know. It was a, an incredible achievement by Rob. Um, exquisite, exquisite iambic pentameter. I mean, exquisite verse. Mm with all the same gifts in it, you know, that what, what's, the, what's the word at the end of the line? What's the word in the middle? Where's the caesura? I mean, he knows all that. He knows it. He's got that in his bones. And so I would say that's where a lot of, you know, literally the, the technical experience of doing Shakespeare kicked in. Um, I think the great Ibsen roles doing Nora on TV and Hedda Gabler on stage at the National Theatre. Um, all those huge, those huge roles where you're carrying the evening, yeah. learning to carry an evening as you do as, as Rosalind, you are the driving engine of a show. That's quite unusual for women. Um, normally the male protagonist is driving the event and you are in a more reactive position like Lady Macbeth or you know, Hermione or Paulina in The Winter's Tale or whatever. But Rosalind is driving that show and, and Hedda's driving her show and um, Nora's driving her. <laughs> so yes, I think I had several times when I, when I, um, or Death and the Maiden, you know, the play, new play at the time by Ariel Dorfman at the Royal Court and then that went into the West End. I mean, Paulina, that main character, absolutely drives that piece like a, like a fury out of hell, you know. Um, so I think I, I learned at the RSC what it is to go out on stage at 7.30 and you propel that narrative with everything in your being, your brain, your intellect, your sexuality, your feelings, your, <coughs> your heart. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. Oh, please. Um, and, uh, um, and that you do that with the language is your petrol, the language is everything. Mm. You fill that language with oxygen and you give it its its shape and its sound, its energy, its rhythms. You <coughs> you um you're a conduit. That language needs to pass through you like a conduit and of course you shape it with your own experience, but that, that's where the power comes from and that's where you learn and that's where that language will take you into places you'd never have gone yourself. It'll teach you even in the moment where to go. Um, that's that's the gift of, of, of that 
eight, nine years I spent at the, at the RSC, for which I'll, you know, I, I'm just so eternally grateful. Well, and, and we look forward very much to seeing you in Stratford in whatever capacity. And I hope that I will get in person to hang a medal around your neck on behalf of the Pragmas, because, you know, it's a great prize and, and uh, you've done an awful lot to earn it. One very last question. Um, which is the only time I can remember seeing you in Shakespeare on screen was Thaisa in the BBC Pericles, um, uh, which is a while ago now. Um, do you have any particular feelings about how Shakespeare does and doesn't work in front of a camera, or you know, you, or, or um, does it does it just seem to you to be essentially the same job as putting it over live? Well, that's a great question, Michael. Um, I think I've never really thought about that. I did, they did film our Hamlet a couple of years ago. Yeah. The BBC filmed the Andrew Scott's Hamlet. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Rob Ike's production and Rob was involved in, in editing the... Mm. I am quite averse in a way to filming Shakespeare productions on stage. I think that's really problematic. Yeah. I think it very seldom works. I don't really like the whole business of filming stage performances, I think. I think if you're going to do that, then take the play off the stage, put it in a studio, yes. rework it completely with everything you know about those characters and that story. But they are utterly different media and sticking some cameras, even intelligently on a stage and capturing a theatre performance, I, I have a real problem with actually. Because theatre is a live performance. It's, it's essence, it's whole essence is, an, is a dialogue between the performers and the, and the audience. Mm -hmm. And... It's a different size, a skirt, anyway. Um, but on the other hand, you know, we were talking earlier about productions I've watched, yeah. and I would say the most influential productions I've seen are those great films, you mm. know, the amazing Russian Hamlet. I mean... The Kaczynski. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. P Peter Brooks, Lear. Yeah. Um, with Schofield. Um, um, the Olivier Richard II, mm. uh, Richard, beg your pardon, beg your pardon, Richard III. Um, those amazing films, and I think Shakespeare absolutely works on film. You just have to, you know, Orson Welles, of course. You, you, you have to be, you have to have that gift of understanding what film is and then how, how what film can bring to bear on, on that kind of text. But film can take, take you to such vast landscapes both literally and of the soul and mind. And therefore, in a way, film does lend itself to Shakespeare because that's what those plays are doing. You just have to be really, really intelligent and creative about how you do it, like those great sort of masterly productions on film I've just mentioned. Um, so I think the answer, not so much to, to, to filming stage productions of it, but absolutely, yes, I would love, I would love to have done more Shakespeare on film. Um, I'm quite sad that I haven't been asked to do more. Um, uh, that is something I would love to do more of, yeah. Let, let's hope the right people are watching this interview and, and will uh, <laughs> you know, act accordingly, because, you know, I, yeah. I, I, I'd be very pleased to see those performances too. Um, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, it's very, very good of you. Uh, um, you know, it's, it's uh, a sort of unwelcome opportunity that with everything shut, uh, you're <laughs> it's possible to do this and to, to catch you when you're you're just coping with BT rather than in, <laughs> in rehearsal. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a real pleasure, Michael. I mean, I, I love talking about, I love nothing more than talking about Shakespeare and, um, and those plays and, and what I've been so, so lucky to have been taught and learned from Mm. My time at the RSC, and I will always, always honour it, and always, you know, acknowledge that um, it, it was the making of me. Really, not that I, you know, I'm not saying I, I'm still learning loads. There's still loads to learn. But it, talk about, you know, what a gift that was to be to be um, given that start in my working life. Really, those plays, that language, and those extraordinary directors and teachers mm. and actors that I had there. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it was a gift for us in the audiences too.